Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Friday, March 19th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. The family feud putting the U.S.'s COVID-19 test swab supply at risk. Could we use our food waste and sewage to fuel jets? And the projected symbol that was spotted in towns all around the world last night. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. From testing to treatment to vaccines, nearly every step of this pandemic has brought with it extraordinary challenges in manufacturing enough supplies for each solution. Syringes, ventilators, PPE, and nose swabs. Or, more specifically, flocked nasopharyngeal swabs. The six-inch flexible swab that gets stuck up your nose when you get a typical COVID test. Quoting Bloomberg, The medical community prefers them because the tiny fibers on the tip easily absorb viral particles and quickly release them for testing. They're more complex than they look. A swab has to be able to travel up the narrow shaft of the nose through a passageway less than 4 millimeters wide to an area roughly halfway between the ears. It has to be soft enough not to damage the nasal canal, yet sturdy enough to push through mucus and collect cells from the nasopharynx, where viruses grow. End quote. They used to be reserved only for patients with a bad enough respiratory virus to be hospitalized, but between that exact patient multiplying exponentially during the pandemic and then the swabs becoming the requisite tool for testing in general, we suddenly needed a lot more of them. When the need for increased testing was first identified at the start of March 2020, the U.S. only had enough nasopharyngeal swabs for about 8,000 tests a day. And at the time, we needed to have been doing millions of them a day. Admiral Brett Geror, the then-Assistant Secretary for Health at the Department of Health and Human Services, was tasked with coming up with the millions of swabs. He started asking around. There were no nasopharyngeal swabs in the national stockpile, he was told, and no one knew who manufactured them. His team worked into the night researching possibilities. None of the major medical suppliers they reached out to had the capacity to manufacture the swabs, and what the team had thought was 10 to 15 possible manufacturers were only distributors. Quoting again from Bloomberg, Garor was further told that only two companies in the world make the swabs. Copen Diagnostics Incorporated in northern Italy, an area then being ravaged by COVID-19, and a small family-owned business in Maine called Puritan Medical Products Company. The swabs are highly specialized devices requiring precise manufacturing and proprietary machines to meet the strict regulatory requirements of hospitals. No other companies could quickly step in. End quote. And part of the reason there were only two companies, except for a low need, the U.S. in total only needed about a million nasopharyngeal swabs a year before the pandemic, there was also the fact that Copen and Puritan repeatedly sued each other for violating their numerous patents. No other companies thought it was worth it to get in the middle of that. So, stuck with no other options, Giroir placed an order of half a million swabs from Copen in Italy before their borders closed, and then called up Puritan in Maine and asked for 100,000 in the next week. After at first being turned down by Timothy Templet, the co-owner and executive vice president for global sales, who said it would be impossible, Giroir asked him to reconsider, and by the next morning, the deal was set. But why did Templet originally turn him down? 
I mean, that's a pretty massive order that would be tough for any company to fulfill, but Puritan and its other business, Hardwood Products Company, was in the midst of a management crisis as a result of a years-long feud between their respective owners, Tim Blett and his cousin, John Cartwright. As Bloomberg put it, quote, Never before had Puritan been more important, and never before had it been so dysfunctional. End quote. And continuing from Bloomberg, Three weeks before Gerard's call, Templet had filed a lawsuit in Cumberland County Superior Court to dissolve their joint ownership of Puritan and Hardwood Products Company, which had started out making mint-flavored toothpicks because of major, long-standing, and irreconcilable disagreements between him and his cousin. The rift had resulted in delayed investments to modernize manufacturing lines, stagnant wages for a dwindling workforce, and an outdated back-office information technology system. The general partner's deadlock had created a dangerous situation, leaving the companies close to a point where something is going to break, the lawsuit read. Cartwright and Templet no longer speak, no longer make joint decisions, and are essentially unable even to be in the same room together. End quote. Puritan is a family business, dating back 100 years when Lloyd Cartwright founded it to manufacture flavored toothpicks. From there, the business expanded to other disposable products like ice cream sticks, corn dog skewers, and tongue depressors. In the 60s, they pivoted to disposable medical products under the name Puritan. And they don't just make nasopharyngeal swabs, in fact those were previously one of their most niche products, they make all sorts of medical-related products, including 65 other types of swabs. And at the time Puritan began, in the 60s, two of Cartwright's sons and his son-in-law, Don Templet, were running the place. They were the kinds of bosses that knew every employee by name and their families. But that amicable workplace environment ended in 2005 when Templet and Cartwright the Younger took over, with Templet heading up Puritan and Cartwright in charge of Hardwood. They didn't treat employees in the same family-like way, and they faced other challenges in recruiting employees, like the town population decreasing as more kids moved away for college and didn't come back. And their personal rivalry, which is common knowledge in their town of Guilford, didn't help. Quoting again, Someone in Guilford said the feud started with a backyard fistfight when the cousins were kids. Others say it began later, when their fathers passed away. Despite jointly running the company for two decades, the two have never been seen on the factory floor together, according to a dozen former and current employees. Even family members can't recall when the cousins last spent time together. At Hardwood Products' 100th anniversary celebration picnic in Guilford in 2019, they avoided each other the entire day. End quote. Whatever the source of the feud to begin with, it's bolstered by clashing personalities and opposite approaches to both life and business. Each cares more about their side of the business, Templet with Puritan and medical supplies, Cartwright with hardwood and, well, wood. Templet is always after innovation and growth, sometimes just for growth's sake. Cartwright prefers a more measured approach. Quote, Jerry Noble, a former general manager, says the dispute is a result of classic cousin rivalry. If you do any research on businesses, when the third generation and cousins come along, that's when a lot of the problems start, he said. Studies show that 30% of family businesses survive through the second generation, but only 13% through the third. End quote. The feud has resulted in a smattering of lawsuits and backhanded dealings, with pressures mounting more and more in recent years. And as all of this was simmering, COVID-19 hit. Puritan was suddenly the sole manufacturer who could provide the swabs required for testing the U.S. populace. 
Admiral Gerard managed to get the two cousins on a phone call in which he expressed the severity of the situation and the need for them to put aside their differences for the good of the country. Neither of them said a word on the call, but apparently it worked enough. Last April, the Department of Defense invested $75.5 million in Puritan so they could double their production. Subsequent government funding followed. They retrofitted two new factories in Pittsfield, Maine, and are planning another in Tennessee. They're approaching a monthly output of 300 million swabs. Gerard says that they probably produced up to 90% of the 195 million swabs the government bought between March and January. And as rapid antigen testing, which requires a slightly different swab, became more popular, Puritan started making those too. Gerard says, quote, The world is still exquisitely dependent on Puritan, end quote. That said, the U.S. did make a small investment in Copen in Italy and in a factory in Puerto Rico, and a few other companies have tried pivoting to the flocked swab design, but Puritan is still poised to dominate the global market, as demand is expected to continue even as it plateaus a bit. But the feud between Cousins, Template, and Cartwright continues. Even if they're forced to communicate a bit more now than in the past, the lawsuits are ongoing, and they continue to fight over every single decision within them. The company, and our supply of swabs for that matter, doesn't seem to be in danger, but this feud is far from ending, if it ever will. We still don't have actual hoverboards, and powerless sneakers aren't quite available for the masses, but we could soon have our own Mr. Fusion machines powering up our vehicles using food waste. Well, actually, this new paper published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences is focused on converting food waste into jet fuel, and since where most of us are going, we still need roads, it's not exactly the same thing, but maybe it could open doors for more consumer automobile use in the future. Maybe. I'm completely speculating here. Here is the actual study, quoting Wired. The work here is focused on what are called wet wastes, which include things like food waste, animal manure, and sewage. As you might expect, we produce a lot of this stuff, with the authors estimating that its total energy content is roughly equivalent to 10 billion gallons of jet fuel every year. Due to the amount of water present, it's extremely energy-intensive to directly convert this waste to any sort of fuel, since the water has to be discarded. It is, however, possible to put the waste in an oxygen-free environment and have bacteria convert it to methane. What the authors focus on is interrupting that process. If you grow the bacteria under the right conditions, they won't fully break down all the longer complex fats. Instead, they'll stop at a point where much of the carbon in those cells is in the form of relatively short molecules that are 4 to 8 carbons long. These typically have a couple of oxygens attached to one end of the carbon chain, making them weak acids. End quote. There's a lot of complex chemistry behind it, but the process is essentially, quote, feed the waste to a bacterial digester, stop the bacteria from producing methane, and isolate the short fatty acids from the digester. Then, put those through a couple of reactions, and out pops a mix of hydrocarbons that can be used as fuel. End quote. Now, among the kinks to work out are the highly specific requirements for jet fuel set for safety by aviation authorities. When mixing this biofuel together with the normal jet fuel, it's fairly straightforward to control for requirements like flashpoint and freezing point, but the more biofuel is used, and in an ideal world we'd have it predominantly biofuel, the tougher it is to control for those requirements. But on the flip side, it's also way cleaner, with soot production dropping by about 65%. 
And that's all well and good, but the main reason alternatives to fossil fuels haven't taken off for jets in the past comes down to cost. The researchers calculate with access to 200 tons of food waste a day, biofuel would be about $2.50 a gallon, which is within the range of competitive jet fuel prices, if a bit higher than they've been in several years. However, Wired points out, quote, if you take carbon emissions into account, things shift considerably. That's because, if not diverted for some other use, the food waste would end up in a landfill and produce methane, which is a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. As a result, diverting this carbon to fuel and burning it avoids those methane emissions. In the grand scheme of things, that more than offsets the 30% of the final fuel mix that comes from petroleum, causing the biofuel-slash-jet fuel mix to produce negative emissions." End quote. But one hole in that calculation is that plenty of food waste doesn't actually reach landfills, being diverted for biodiesel feedstock. You know, the actual real-world equivalent of the Mr. Fusion from Back to the Future I was going on about. I know we can already power cars from soybean oil and stuff like that. I just really like imagining a world where I dump my compost into a food processor-looking machine on top of my car and then drive away into the sunset or the sky. But anyways, this biofuel development is promising, especially since it can be blended with standard jet fuel. And I continue to be intrigued by any creative uses for our species' incredible amount of waste. So Marvel's latest series, Falcon and Winter Soldier, debuted on Disney Plus today, and the mouse is putting out all the stops when it comes to publicity. Captain America's shield has been projected onto the London Eye. Yes, the giant Ferris wheel kind of thing in London, England, is currently covered with a huge symbol of America. It's pretty great. The shield has also been projected on landmarks in Argentina, Mexico, Australia, Singapore, France, Italy, and Switzerland. The TV show apparently features the main characters traveling all around the world, potentially to these exact locations, so I guess this promo makes sense. It just also feels like a weird echo of imperialism, just throwing up the American flag in cities all over the world. Link to some photos of the shield in the show notes. And in other weird news, Rusty Foster over at Today in Tabs spotted an interesting new submission on the Federal Election Commission's website. Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day has apparently filed paperwork to run for president as a Republican. Armstrong hasn't addressed the matter as of recording, but I'm pretty sure it's fake. Armstrong has been outspoken about his politics in the past, openly supporting President Biden in 2020, and the FEC admits they get a lot of false and fictitious filings. Plus, Armstrong's VP is officially listed as St. Jimmy of the Krusty Krab, one word. Which, like, I actually wouldn't totally put past Armstrong doing, but still, probably all fake. But that is it for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.